Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. Welcome, everyone. We are going to get started. This is our lesson on how to land an airplane. So if you have always wondered how to land an airplane, or perhaps you have over 10,000 hours and you just want to practice putting it into words better, then hopefully today will help you out. I first started teaching this in 2011 in a safety seminar for pilots. And I had that wide range of pilots in the room. We had some pilots with zero hours and some pilots with over 10,000 hours. And what's interesting is even if a pilot knows how to land well, a lot of times it's almost too easy for them and they've forgotten how to put it in words. Like for example, walking. Walking is so easy for a lot of us that we forget how to put it in words. This is hopefully going to help everybody of every level. What's interesting is when I was a chief flight instructor of a flight school, I used to use this as one of my interview questions. I would ask the interviewing candidate to explain how to land, and I could tell a lot about someone just by how they explained a landing, because it's one of those things that we just, once you learn it, you almost stop learning how to explain it. Let's start with a very basic question. What is a landing? The fun answer for me, at least, is a landing, it's no more than a controlled crash into the ground. Yes, it is like a controlled crash. I love that explanation. The official explanation in a lot of dictionaries is something like arriving at the ground or the surface after moving through the air or something like that. We know it's an arrival. And then I really like what the FAA says in their airplane flying handbook, which is where I got a lot of this information. They say it is a transition to a landing attitude gradually rounding out the flight path to one that is parallel with the surface. Now, they specifically were talking about the flare portion of the landing, but that really is what a landing is. A landing, in order to have that controlled crash, first you start with an angle toward the ground, and then you change that angle to one that your flight path to one that is almost parallel with the ground. Then, after that, it's the art of dissipating out the energy and gradually lowering yourself lower and lower toward the ground as you dissipate out the energy. Now, some people say that a landing always has to be in a stall, but 
most sources, most government sources, say that it should be at or near a stall. So I just want to dispel that myth right off of the uh, the bat. Who here, for those who have never landed before, we have to explain what a stall is. It's not an engine failure. That's something different. Would someone here like to make a quick explanation of what a stall is? A stall is where you your wings pretty much stop producing lift and you're going to be pulled um, downwards following your weight axis. Excellent. That is what it is. When we, for someone who's not a pilot, I just wanted to explain, when we talk about a stall, we mean that the plane cannot fly anymore. Usually it got too slow or it pitched the nose up too high and there's not enough air flowing over the wings. So we know that a landing is essentially a controlled crash. It's changing the flight path from one that goes toward the ground to one that's almost parallel with the ground. And then it is at or near a stall, which means that almost all of the energy in the airplane is used up. There is a funny quote that I like. And by the way, you can get this on the handout from my Instagram profile, My Instagram profile is landings with a flare, landings with an S and flare, F-L-A-I-R. So there's a great quote I like, and it says, the probability of survival is inversely proportional to the angle of arrival. Again, that's what we were saying. If you have a, a 90 degree angle toward the ground, you're coming straight down in a crash, you do not have a high chance of survival. But if you can manage to round out your flight path as you get toward the ground till it's almost parallel, now you have a very high chance of survival. So now we are going to explain how to land in three simple steps for everyone who has never done it before. I used to use this when I was instructing a lot, and especially when I was teaching something called pinch hitter courses which was for like the spouses and the partners or the non-pilot companions of pilots. So we only had a few hours to teach someone how to land. Here are my three steps, if I had to break it into three steps. Step number one, aim at the numbers on the runway. Step number two, when you are within a wingspan of the ground, pitch for straight and level flight. Step three, when the plane starts to sink, raise the nose. And again, now this is going to be aimed mostly at small airplanes. Unless we say otherwise, everything we say today is going to be aimed at small propeller, tricycle gear that's nose wheel airplanes, single engine. But we will hopefully still have a lot of application to other airplanes. So again, in a small plane, you just kind of angle the plane toward the ground. Usually it's about a three degree angle and there's some kind of aiming point. It's often going to be the numbers on the runway, but it might be the second stripe on the runway center line or something like that. Then when you're within a wingspan of the ground, again, pitch for straight and level. And then when the plane starts to sink, just pull back on the controls. So those are my three steps. Okay. So we've talked about the three basic steps of a landing. And really, I want to explain just a little bit more about what's happening when the plane is pulling back as it gets close to the ground. So we know that initially the pilot has to make the plane go straight and level with the runway. 
And at that point, the plane is not going to hold straight and level flight like it did in cruise or in the practice area. And the reason is because the pilot has usually pulled out the power by then. The plane is going to start to sink. Now, that's okay. We want the plane to run out of energy, your uh, kinetic energy and potential energy. And so as the plane sinks, the pilot's job is to dissipate out all the energy before the plane touches the ground. So it's like a game where the plane sinks a little and then the pilot pulls back a little to create just a little bit more lift. Then the plane sinks because it loses more energy and then the pilot pulls back a little bit more. And it could be a very smooth thing, but as the plane keeps sinking and losing energy, the pilot just keeps pulling back and pulling back to squeeze out as much lift as possible from the wings. Think of it as having a certain amount of energy in the plane and just distributing it out evenly. That is what a landing is. Now, the FAA officially says that there are four parts to a landing. I only said that there were three, but the FAA adds on a fourth one. These are the approach, the flare or the roundout, the touchdown, and the rollout. I'll explain those really briefly, and then we will go into each one in great depth. So the approach is the angle that the plane has as it's flying in, which is often around three degrees, and that is getting the plane angled toward the aiming point on the runway. The flare or the roundout is the part that we talked about where the plane changes the angle so that it's parallel. Then the touchdown is the actual settling of the plane onto the Earth's surface. That's when the wheels touch. And then the rollout is the part that I didn't really mention before. But that is where the plane still decelerates as it moves down the runway. And this is an important part. A lot of pilots might be tempted to think, oh, I landed. I can, I can relax now. I can let down my guard. But remember that the plane is still traveling at high speeds and the pilot must pay attention to the plane. We say do not stop flying the airplane until the engine is shut off and either the brakes are set or the chocks are in to hold the wheels. All four of those are important parts. Let's start with the approach, the first official part of the landing. There are four things you need, and then we'll talk about those. A good approach has to be stabilized. That is what makes a good approach. In order to have a stabilized approach, you need a constant approach path, constant airspeed, an aiming point, and a steady trimmed airplane. My old instructor used to say, if the plane is stabilized, you will feel stabilized. And now we're going to talk about what that really means for stability. The first thing you need is a constant approach path. It's actually pretty simple. Most pilots know that their angle should just be one straight angle in. They shouldn't be skimming in low over the trees and then chopping the power at the last minute for a short landing. 
That is a technique that some pilots used to do, and now the FAA strongly discourages it. It's just, again, for a constant approach path, several hundred feet up, you want to have a nice steady angle all the way in. By the way, there are pictures of this, and it's on page two of the handout. So let's talk about a constant airspeed. We know what airspeed is, but let's talk about how it affects this. Who would like to explain the effects of having too fast of an airspeed? Well, the first risk of having a a higher airspeed during your approach is that you're going to have less time to, to prepare and configure your aircraft for landing. Excellent. Any other comments? Let's go with Sandun. By the way, did I say your name correctly? Yeah, I'm Sandun. And the main thing is the, the reaction time, of course. But the second thing is, when after round out, you'll be floating for a long distance other than the normal speed. Because of the speed, you have disappeared the speed for touchdown before going to clear out. So you'll be floating on the runway student level for a long distance other than the normal as if you approach at a fast faster speed. Yes, a high airspeed equals a long landing or floating. A slow airspeed equals a short landing or a short flare. Yeah, the whole side picture is different when you look out of the flight deck. Um, risk of tail, scr- tail strike and improper landing performance. Uh, it's not only also. It's not about uh, what Senan already said. Um, if you uh, if you calculated them, um, it's I don't know if the small aircraft have to do it. They're flying commercially. I have no clue. But um, the whole landing performance calculation is wrong, and therefore you're on a grayish or outside of limitation. Yes, nearly every airplane has a recommended landing speed. If your plane doesn't have a specific recommended landing speed then typically it's going to be something called 1.3 times VSO. VSO is the stalling speed with a dirty configuration. That means the gear and the flaps out. The recommended speed is going to be quite important to landing. Even changing the speed a little bit can change how the whole landing looks. And this, I'm so I'm a flight instructor. I was a flight instructor actively for many years. And I can tell you that this is one of the secrets to helping a student learn how to land quickly. If the student has good discipline on airspeed control, then it's almost like they're only learning one landing. If the student is always too fast or too slow or moving back and forth, then it's going to take them so much longer to learn how to land because it's like every time they're doing a totally different landing. And so the sight picture is different. On the bottom of page two on the handout, I have consistent airspeed is the key to a predictable flare. That is the key to learning how to land quickly and also to predicting the length of the landing. So we talked about the constant path and we talked about the constant speed Now, we're going to talk about an aiming point. Every pilot should have some type of aiming point. You should know where you are planning to essentially point the airplane. Now, the 
aiming point is different than the touchdown point. Because remember, the aiming point is basically where the plane would crash or nose in if you did not flare. We talked about the approach path has to be this angle in toward the ground, and then the pilot rounds it out. So the aiming point is the first point where the plane would crash if the pilot did not round it out. Now, the aiming point can be a lot of different things, as we mentioned. In a small airplane, if you're a beginner and you're just learning, it's probably going to be the numbers on the runway. But as a pilot, you can choose what an appropriate aiming point is for yourself. Another option is often about the second stripe on the runway centerline. That can make a good aiming point as well. It does depend on what situation you're in. With the aiming point, it's like you want to make the point stay in the same spot on the windshield of your airplane. Everything else around it will look like it's getting bigger, but the point should look like it's staying in the same place. I find that this is actually nice to teach in simulators. I tell pilots in simulators to try to hold the runway in one place. And of course, what they're really doing is they're holding the airplane in a steady place and not the runway. But if you flip it around in your brain, then trying to hold the runway in one place will work. It results in the plane being correct as well. How do we hold the point in one place? I would suggest that you use something called pitch to the airspeed power to the altitude. Both pitch and power can control where the aiming point is. However, if you're constantly doing both, you'll be almost like a dog chasing its tail. You will always be trying to adjust something because there is this chain effect or a ripple effect of everything that you adjust. So what I suggest is you take out one of the variables, which in this case would be the airspeed. Make airspeed a constant variable and make that your top priority. So pitch for your airspeed. And it's nice that the airspeed indicator is on the left side. And normally, if you're sitting in the left seat, you're controlling the controls with your left hand. So everything on, so remember, pitch with your hand to control the airspeed. Once you have the airspeed locked in, now there's only one thing that you have to concentrate on, and that is the power. Again, we're talking about small planes here, not jets. And we're also talking about being in a landing configuration where you would be on the reverse. This is for advanced pilots who might argue. You will be in something called the region of reverse command. In cruise flight, when you're flying fast, beyond the max liftover drag point, now the rules change. But remember, you're flying slowly and you're in the region of reverse command. That is because I know I would get some arguments from more advanced pilots. But again, this is my technique. There are other ways to do it. But I lock in the airspeed with my left hand and using the airspeed gauge on the left. And then I use the power 
as my variable to hold the aiming point in one place. If the aiming point looks like it's drifting down in the windshield, that means that I am overshooting the point. So I would pull out some power. If the aiming point looks like it's drifting up in the windshield, then I would add power because that means that I'm not aiming right at it. And then the last thing I'll say before I open it up to comments is to talk about where the aiming point should be. In a small airplane, that's a pretty typical plane, usually it's going to be about one quarter to one fifth of the way up the windshield. When I was a flight instructor, I would actually put a little sticker or a piece of a post-it note right where the aiming point should be for my students so that they could visually see where to put it. And if I didn't have a sticker with me, I would just move my arm across the windshield to show them the height that they should keep it. So those are some thoughts on aiming points. I'm going to open it up to comments. Let's start with Mayank. Did I say your name correctly? Yes, yes, Teresa. Thank you. It's Mayank. Yeah, it was like, I remember, Teresa, when you told uh, about the second center line, I remember my initial days. So I was, you know, struggling with my solo back when I was flying in Miami. So I remember my instructor told me about the aiming point. Like you said, you used to put a stripe. I always, you know, aim with my nose. The cowling. So I always use my cowling. And I remember because I used to fly from the left initially. So he told me the center line should always be on your right shoulder. And if you're on your left, it should be always between your chest on your shoulder harness. So I remember while landing, like you said, we used to, you know, have 1.3 VSO. And it was around you know, 172. I used to keep it around 65, 70. And I remember when we used to come down there, I always used to aim for the second center line. Then as soon as I used to go at 100 feet, I used to use, uh, you know, a notch of trim so that, you know, I don't have to play much with the pitch and everything. I remember I used to give it two nose-up trims. And then when we used to start flaring, I used to, then my aiming point you used to just go shift from second center line to the third center line, to the fourth center line, to the fifth center line. By the time it was sixth, I remember I used to, you know, touch the main wheels and then the nose gear. But there, there's one thing which I always found you know, better for me was always landing with some power. And I want you to help me with some more points on it because I know you're going to help me good. But I always remember I never used to land with idle power. I always used to keep, you know, some RPM so that the transition was smooth. And as you said, first I used to come with the nose down 90 degrees and then, you know, eventually the main wheels used to touch. Thank you. It sounds like you had a flight instructor who was the kind of instructor that I like they would give you very specific parameters. It does not mean that every single day the weather conditions would be exactly correct for those parameters. But what it means is that you had a measuring stick to measure against. If you were required to deviate from that, you knew what you were deviating from. There was this marker in your, in your mind that you knew roughly how much you were deviating on a given day. So a lot of what you said was good. Now, one thing that you mentioned is landing with power. It sounds to me like that might have been what we would call a crutch. In other words, it's a bit of a bad habit probably that you developed, and you would have to probably go with a flight instructor to get yourself 
uh, at least some safety as you experimented doing it with the power out. So that one you probably would want to fly with someone else and then just experiment getting what we would call the new site picture. Now, I was going to talk about this next week, but we actually, there is something called a cheat that actually, what you said with adding a little power at the end or keeping the power in, that is one of my favorite ways to cheat in a landing. When I was a new pilot, if I wasn't sure I was going to land softly, I would just add in a little extra power right at the end and it would slow the plane down even more as it came in contact with the ground. And I could do a softer landing just because I did what I would call a cheat. Any other comments so far on aiming points? Yeah, also, uh, I think it's important to know what's the difference between vector point and aiming point. Uh, the vector point is like the point where the aircraft would hit the ground if you don't do anything at all right now. And therefore, if you want to change that flight path, you have to move your vector point. Uh, sorry, your aiming point to the front or to the towards the rear. And then I also want to say even small deviations should be um, counteracted right away because they may oscillate even more later out uh, upon landing. Oh, interesting. So in the United States, we call that the touchdown point. It sounds like you call that the vector point because there are two points. There's the aiming point and then the touchdown point or the vector point. One is, again, where you would crash if you didn't flare, and the other is where the wheels are going to touch down, which is farther down the runway. That's interesting. So you call it the vector point. Yeah, that's what I've learned, but I, I, I also found out that not a lot of professional pilots know what the vector point is, or I, they're always talking about it uh, if it would be the aiming point, but those are two different uh, points, actually. That's great. I love hearing about how slightly different techniques come around. I always learn something. When Mayank was speaking, he reminded me of something really important. And that is how to make sure that you are aligned with the runway centerline. Because holding the numbers in one place isn't just, or not the numbers, the aiming point. It's not just a factor of vertical, the up and down. It's also about being back and forth, left and right. My best trick for judging if I'm pointing toward the runway correctly, I actually do best at night. And this is often when I like to teach it to students. As a plane approaches a typical runway, there are green threshold lights across the front of the runway and red threshold lights along the back of the runway. I tell my students at night to make sure the green lights line up in front of the red lights. Some people who haven't landed before might say, well, isn't that self-explanatory? I mean, of course you should point straight and then they'll all look straight. But someone who's an experienced pilot knows that there are often winds that we are correcting for. And the nose of the plane might be pointed in a slightly different direction than the runway. So then if the nose is pointed off to one side, how do you tell that your path is still aligned with the runway? So that's where I like to use the threshold lights 
And again, at night, it's just a nice, easy way to see it. But you could do the same thing during the day. Now, just look at the edges of each of the runway and then just line up the edges, the front and the back. Then also, a lot of people say that the, just the shape of the runway should look like it's staying the same. It, the shape is basically a trapezoid, and it should look like the runway shape is getting bigger but not like the trapezoid is changing or the shape is changing. So there are a lot of ways to make sure that you are steady. I want to talk about one of the keys to staying stable. Now, the key to staying stable, as many experienced pilots know, is to make small changes and not big changes. If you look at the top of page four, on the handout that you can get from my Instagram profile, you will see two different sets of lines. And think of those almost like noise or vibrations that you get when you're listening to different frequencies. One of them has what we would call a high frequency and a high amplitude. It's a zigzag line going back and forth really quickly. And then the other one has a low frequency and a low altitude, at low amplitude, excuse me, where it is a zigzag line, but it's, it's just barely moving back and forth or drifting back and forth. You want your flight path to look like the second line and not like the first line. What that means is if you notice your plane is drifting off course, you make a small, slow, gradual correction to get back on. It will take you a lot longer to get back to the center, but because it was such a slow correction, you won't accidentally overshoot too far in the other direction as well. This doesn't always have to apply to flying. It could also apply to taxiing the airplane. Imagine a new pilot in a plane trying to taxi down the center line, and maybe they go off to the left, so they slam on the rudder pedal to steer to the right, and then they steer quickly to the left and then quickly to the right. That pilot is going to get tired, and they're also really just going to be working so hard because they made such quick corrections that they drifted past where they wanted to stop. And now they have frequent corrections and big corrections. In that situation, a pilot who's taxiing off the center line might be better off just correcting enough to taxi parallel to the center line and then adding in just a tiny bit more to just gradually get back. Gradual changes keep planes stable. Again, to take this back to the landings, if you are on a final approach and you are off your course, remember that you don't need to be aligned until you're fairly close to the runway. Think small changes which give you more control. Let's talk about what to do if the approach is too high. This is still on page four of the handout. This might be a little more advanced for someone who's new. What are some things that you would do, feel free to flash your microphone, if your approach is too high? Go around. Sure, absolutely. Go around, for those who don't know. It means add power, climb out, and try again. What other techniques should we use, Mayank? 
sometimes it happens you know if i'm alone and if i have ample runway like i know the runway is like 6000 7000 feet so i'm going to you know probably perform a slip you know what i prefer a forward slip you know yeah so a forward slip is a wonderful technique for adding drag and increasing the descent rate of the plane. Now, this can be done again in small planes. We're not speaking about jets with critical wing designs and things like that. But in a small plane, we'll talk more about slips at another uh, next week. But basically, a slip means moving the ailerons in one direction and the rudder in the other, so that the plane turns to the side, creates a lot of drag, and then descends much more rapidly. That is one of my one of the ones I was hoping someone would say. Let's go to, is it Eli? Did I say your name correctly? Yes, Captain. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Captain. Coming high to the runway, the best fix uh, I use as a student is just reduce the power, maybe cut wider, and uh, bring the nose down until we again come into the, the right track to the runway. Bringing out the power is probably one of the most important fundamental steps. Now, bringing the nose down is controversial because remember that a slow airspeed gives you a steeper angle in and it gives you a shorter flare. Bringing the nose up to make sure that you've slowed down to the proper speed is actually important. And I say proper speed, of course, we don't want to bring it up too much. But power is the number one thing that we mentioned. So as I said before, pitch to the airspeed, power to the altitude. If you lock your speed in, then you, all you have to worry about is the power. Okay, there's one other basic, basic thing that a lot of pilots can do if their approach is too high. And this is to add flaps early. Now, again, for those who don't know, flaps are complicated, and we'll talk about those more at another time, but they add drag to the plane. They're, they are those things on the back of the wing that you see the pilots lowering when they're getting ready to land. Maybe your plane usually lands with 30 degrees of flaps, but you actually have a setting for 45 degrees of flaps. In that case, you could add more flaps. Or perhaps you only have 30 degrees of flaps, but you just start adding the flaps early, and now you just give yourself more drag sooner. There is a lot that you can do with flaps. Now, on the flip side, if there's a really strong headwind, a pilot might choose to use fewer flaps because the headwind will already give that steeper approach angle to the pilot and to the plane. So it might be in the pilot's best interest to use fewer flaps so that it actually feels normal. That covers what to do if the approach is too high. Now, what should we do, and a lot of it is reverse, if the approach is too low? Yeah, in case of go-around, if uh, too low, because you're too, too much towards terrain. If it's too low, it means like too low is like out of limits, I would say. If it's, it's not low, it's too low, huh? Sure. Going around, basically resetting and starting again, is almost always a good choice. 
what other things can we do that might be the reverse of what we were talking about before? Kumail, thank you for joining us. Did I say your name correctly? Oh, yeah, that's correct. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Doing great. Uh, So what would you do if your approach was too low? I would think I would just gradually add power and arrest the rate of descent in case I have to land. Absolutely. Power is probably your number one item. So we've talked about what to do if the approach is too high, if it's too low. You could always, you could wait to add flaps if it's too low. But for safety, don't make some common mistakes if it's too low. Do not retract the flaps as you are descending. If you want to take out the flaps, you should add power, start climbing out for the go around, and then retract the flaps one notch at a time. And next week, we will go into great detail about go arounds. Uh, Eli, I see you open your mic. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Captain. So I want you to describe us the ripple effects on the approach. I mean, let's say we just get very low, into the runway, we add power so that we don't just land it short of the runway. But what about their speed when increasing this power? What's going to happen with their speed? As you said, there are many ripple effects happening a lot on the final. So I want you to make clear. Thank you. The best advice on the airspeed is to keep it at the recommended airspeed for your airplane, period. Just keep the airspeed recommended. If you cannot control the plane with the power, then you are not stabilized enough and you should probably go around anyway. If you push forward on the nose to speed up, then uh, it'll, like we said before, it'll change the flare and it'll actually make you land longer. You'll need more runway. If you feel like you're low and you make a common mistake of trying to pull back on the plane to make the plane climb up, you actually did the opposite of what you want. It's counterintuitive, but you actually made it so that you're going to land even shorter by pulling up on the nose and not longer. So you might feel like you're low and a new pilot might think, oh, I'm low, I should pull up. But that is the wrong answer. The answer is keep the airspeed the same and use the power. And if you don't have enough to fix it, then just go around. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to add one more thing. If if you're too high, it is not related to what Eli asked. But if you're too high on the approach, I don't know, I haven't flown the variable pitch, the 172s, but in the aircraft which I fly is the ADR. ADR slipping is also a technique, but uh, we are always, we're usually flying in the mountains and in the valleys. Slipping over there would not be recommended. However, what we do is in, in ATRs, we, we put the, uh, we change the pitch of the propeller. We move it to flight fine, which produces more drag. And it keeps the airspeed relatively constant. Giving us more drag, it causes uh, to, uh, to, to achieve pretty great rate of descent. So that is how we also control our rate of descent if you get high. Oh, thank you for adding that. That is a good point. If you have the type of plane where you can create more drag with your propellers, that is a great trick. I do agree with that. And also the fact that what Kumai said is that depending on your aircraft, slippage is not allowed during descent. 
Yes, it might be dangerous if you have the wrong type of airplane or if you don't know how to do it properly. Because again, if you happen to stall while you are slipping, that is not a good situation. You could spin the airplane and you would be very low to the ground. And so what we would say is, well, I would say that the ground interrupts your maneuver. If you spin most airplanes at a high altitude, there is time to recover. There are recoveries in most airplanes. But if you're low to the ground, it doesn't matter how aerobatic or acrobatic your plane is, you will run out of altitude to recover. That is such a good point. And that actually brings me right into the next subject I was going to discuss on the bottom of page four, which is to talk about the most dangerous part of the approach. Before we move on to the other parts of the landing, I want to remind you that the most dangerous part of the approach is usually the turn from base to final. So when the pilot is turning onto their final approach path, that is often where they will get into stall spin accidents. Often what happens is a pilot might find that they are overshooting their turn. They waited too long or maybe they have more of a tailwind and they go past it. The pilot wants to cheat and instead of doing a nice coordinated flight back to the path, the pilot starts trying to cheat by using the rudder to try to bring the plane back and it can put the plane into a slip or a skidding situation. Again, if you're new, I'm sorry, you won't understand what that is. We'll talk more about that in aerodynamics at some point. But long story short, if the pilot also makes the mistake of raising the nose up too high in the turn, now the pilot has all the ingredients they need for a spin. They got too high, so the plane stalled and they were uncoordinated. And unfortunately, lots of planes do various types of spins or even snap rolls right there at that point at an airport. Someone told me that accident investigators would often look there at that point first if they heard that a plane crashed near an airport. They would look at where the pattern was for the runway in use, and then they would often look slightly off to the right side of where the planes were turning from base to final if it was left traffic. And often that is where they would find the plane had spawned right into the ground. So it's a common error. So pilots should know that they have to be very deliberate, vigilant, and careful as they make that turn. That is not the time to start experimenting. You want to keep the nose pitched down at a safe pitch attitude and definitely keep it coordinated. That means use the right amount of rudder. Any comments on stall spin accidents as people turn to the approach path? It's also a good, good technique to, if you're using the poppies, if you're coming in from the base and you're about to turn, um, the poppies will show you a wrong um, show you wrong because you might not be on the on the on the perfect descent path, and then if you're turning fine base to final, 
the best thing would be if you have like 2.5 to 3 white and then one red because when you turn when you are later on in final everything's going to be fine it's just an optical illusion Interesting. I don't know if I agree with that about the optical illusion. Does anyone want to weigh in? I could be wrong, but so the pappies are lights and they're permanently fixed. It's not like an ILS localizer that can be inaccurate if you're coming in from the side. The lights are just angled angled at the pilot's vision. So if the pilot stood right in front of them, they could sort of raise up and they would see white and they'd kind of crouch down and they'd see red. And so it's just a matter of up and down. I don't know if the angles are involved. Does anyone want to agree or disagree? Omar, welcome. Yeah, Captain, I think you're you're right. The pappies, the lights themselves are at a specific angle, depending on how high or low not your position uh, horizontally, but vertically, you will see reds and, and whites. No, I pass you. I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to search for info and go and pass it to you. Yes, yes, I want you to. Please do. And for the record, I like it when people bring up new subjects and even disagree with me. So that is fine. Feel free. Now, I do like what you said though about not necessarily being on the right approach path. The pappies, those lights that help guide the pilots in, those are really for multi-engine or twin-engine airplanes. Those are meant, a plane with two engines doesn't worry as much about an engine failure. If one engine fails, they have the other engine, so they're not worried about gliding into the runway. In a small plane with one engine, if your engine fails, you should really be able to set yourself up so that you can glide into the runway as you're coming around to land. So if an instructor says, don't worry about the pappies or the vassies, those lights, they are probably saying that because they want you above the three-degree glide path, not necessarily because the lights are wrong, but more because they're not designed for your type of plane. Any other comments? Yes, Captain. I remember on my uh, multi-engine add-on commercial check ride on my final single-engine approach, the examiner noted that I was a little bit over the glide slope, and he liked that. He said, in single-engine operation, your minimum is going to be the, the glide slope, and you got to be at or above just in case. Oh, I like that. He's sort of using it as a lower limit. Just don't go below that no matter what. And as several people pointed out earlier, it is safer to be high than low, although obviously there are limits on how high you should be also. If you can't land in the first one-third of the runway, most government recommendations from the FAA are to go around. Okay, so we have covered what a landing is, and we've gone into great depth on what a stabilized approach is. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy we don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment 
and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the club pilot flight training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.